everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. So this week, Larry Krasner, some might call him the godfather of the progressive prosecutor movement, because in 2017, he got elected as DA in Philadelphia. And since then, he's incurred the wrath of the FOP and the tough-on-crime folks. Uh, He faced a former deputy DA in the Democratic primary on Tuesday, and he won overwhelmingly. The primary was seen by many as a referendum on whether a wave of prosecutors elected on promises of criminal justice reform, measures that uh, shortened probation, curtailed cash bail, among many other things, would be blamed for the increase in violent crime. Here to discuss what all this means on Everyday Injustice, we have NYU law professor Rachel Barco, author of the great book, Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. So welcome, Rachel. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So what are your thoughts on Krasner's win and what it all means? It's terrific. You know, I think um, some of us, and I include myself here, thought that uh, it's one thing to elect someone on a progressive platform when it hadn't really been done before and you kind of had a first mover advantage. Uh, So, you know, it was it was a kind of brilliant strategy by the various advocates that thought to target prosecutors races as a space where you could get real criminal justice reform done. And they kind of got a head start in the race by coming up with this idea. And I think the conservative establishment was caught off guard. And so I think a lot of the races that progressives won, it was a little hard to tell how much that was just basically catching the other side by surprise. But what this election shows is that these folks can get reelected when everybody knows what's going on after they assemble a track record that is in fact everything they said they would do. Um, And even with really intense opposition by powerful police unions, um, you know, I think we've seen other people get reelected who ran on more progressive platforms, but I think in many ways, Larry Krasner's is the most important just because of the police union opposition being as strong as it was and for, Larry being as outspoken as he has been, he's in some ways been kind of the bellwether of this movement. Um, so I think seeing him get reelected is just monumental. It, it's really terrific. So here in California, we're, we're watching this closely because we're seeing what's happening to Chesa Bodine in San Francisco and George Gascone 
in LA and they're both under fire potentially facing uh, recalls. Uh, I think uh, Chase is a little further uh, along in terms of that than uh, George is, but do you see lessons that we can take from that out here? You know, there's a couple, you know, so one of them is where's your media? Um, you know, how much is the media kind of part of the effort to discredit these reform prosecutors versus is the media giving them a fair shake? Um, and I do think that the Philadelphia media was really harsh on Larry Krasner when he first ran, but they were a little bit more measured this time. Like they were a little bit more willing to kind of take a look at the whole record and really think about it. And he also had a lot of support from establishment Democrats, um, you know, very well-regarded people um, in the Philadelphia, broader Pennsylvania community. So I think the lessons to kind of draw from or think about uh, in a place like California is, you know, what's the media doing? Are they kind of the mouthpiece for the people that are seeking to recall these folks? Are they running the scare type stories that you see time and time again when it comes to crime? Um, and where are the establishment figures here making sure they're providing a backstop for these people? You know, basically supporting them, explaining how what it is that they're doing is good. If they don't have that, you know, I think they're vulnerable. I think those are some things that were really important. Um, and then I guess the last thing isn't necessarily just a lesson from Larry Krasner's victory, but, you know, any political, you just need people to show up. You know, you need to get out your supporters. You need grassroots activism. You know, you need to make sure that the people in the community who support your policies are really there for you. Um, Recall efforts are a little tricky. Uh, you know, it's a it's a slightly different political dynamic. But at the end of the day, you know, you need your supporters to come out and protect you. Where do you see the mood of the country at this point in terms of criminal justice reform? I still think it's mixed. Uh, you know, I think it's great to see something like the Krasner re-election because it does show that voters can. Um, entertain two thoughts in their brains at the same time. Yes, there's an increase in gun crime in Philadelphia, but that doesn't mean it's tied to policies that Larry Krasner has been pursuing. So, you know, they were kind of able to take a sensible approach and say, oh, he wants to reduce gun crime too. And he has a different strategy for doing it that involves getting at root causes and thinking about which cases should be prosecuted and which can't. My worry is that that's not true everywhere. And as we see additional spikes in homicides and in gun crime, which we're seeing all around the country, you know, it's, um, it happens in cities with prosecutors who are progressive and ones that aren't, you know, ones with Democratic mayors and Republican mayors. There's no, there's no political balance to it. There's just been an uptick in, uh, in homicides in various places and in particular gun crime. And so the question is going to be, does that curtail criminal justice reform or uh, is there still space for it? And, and here again, I do think the media plays a huge part because a lot of it is how this gets pitched and presented to the public. And, you know, when you read news stories that make suggestions like, you know, gun crime is up in the wake of new liberal policies. <laughs> you know, I think then voters think, oh, it's the liberal policies. You know, if instead you get the more nuanced looks that really try to think of what does it mean to come out of a pandemic, um, you know, where we have just a lot of social instability. I mean, honestly, criminologists aren't really sure why we're seeing some of what we're seeing. The one thing that we know for sure though is 
pretty much all crime goes up in the summer. Um, so I don't think we're going to see a dip. I think we're going to see things continuing to go up as the weather warms around the country. And so it's a test, you know, it's a test to see how people are getting their news and how they're processing it and to see because, you know, criminal justice reform is good for public safety. It will help with these things, but it's just, can it withstand these kind of short-term surges that really don't have anything to do with these um, policies of decarceration? Um, it's unrelated, but if it's connected in people's minds, that's what makes it hard. Yeah, one of the um, things that's really interesting, you know, I've followed uh, local news coverage in San Francisco and LA, and it's really mixed. Um, you know, there was like a month of coverage in San Francisco where they were hitting on, oh, crime is rising, crime is rising, crime is rising. And then they actually looked at the actual stats. And what the stats showed was actually a much more mixed picture that crime actually, uh, violent crime and also property crime overall was down, but there were certain categories yeah. that were up. So murder was up. Um, I. I'm trying to remember the exact uh, property crime, but there were certain property crimes that were up, even though overall it was down. Um, and and then, you know, the Chronicle comes out with this nice uh, analysis that showed that actually crime was down, but it came after like months of sustained coverage that uh, suggested it was up. So it's like, and, and the same reporters, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I really think it's um, it's such a huge part of this is how it's all presented. And and those patterns are very typical. You know, we're seeing that in other places, too. It's homicides are up, but not um, other kinds of crimes uh, in many places, you know, not robberies, not burglaries. It's or, you know, it's it's not a kind of a rise trajectory across all major crimes at all. And so um, in some ways, it's got criminologists a little bit, you know, they're trying to figure out why is that? You know, why might it be what we're seeing? Um, but it, it's not connected to these policies because we're seeing it in various cities, some of which have none of these policies whatsoever. You know, so, you know, I think we can be pretty confident um, that if it's happening in cities that have traditional tough on crime prosecutors, that's not what's doing it. Um, you know, if it's happening everywhere, it's something else that's more universal than that. But if the media doesn't cover it that way, it's hard for voters and, and uh, regular citizens to know about that. And, you know, it's tough because you do have police unions um, and other insiders who they want to present it that way. You know, they are using it as their tool to get rid of people that they've long opposed, you know, so the police have not liked Chase Aboudin, you know, and so they can give this data to reporters day and night. They can give them stories and they can say, this is what's causing it. It's him, you know, and if the reporters run with those stories without thinking, um, I think it's a real problem. And I, I would just hope, you know, in the wake of everything we've seen since George Floyd's death and everything we've learned about how police report what happens. And then we see the video and we see it's nothing like what they said happened. You know, you see with your own eyes that they had lied in their reports. I just hope that journalists get a little bit better uh, at, at being skeptical uh, and, you know, not be stenographers for the police anymore, but really think about it. And, and that includes things like analyzing this crime data. So one interesting thing on Tuesday night, I saw Diaz, who uh, was the opponent of Krasner, uh, basically tweeted out that, uh, you know, this was a big loss for, for victims. But when, um, 
you know, we haven't had a chance to do a real deep dive uh, of the polling data yet, but the basic polling breakdown that we've seen already uh, shows that actually the places with the highest concentration of crime victims are the ones that voted most heavily for uh, Krasner. So what are we actually seeing here? You know, I think when we talk about crime victims, there's the reality and then there's how certain uh, politicians try to use the term victim. So, you know, when you look at the data on where we see lots of crime victimization, um, you know, it's disproportionately people of color uh, who are crime victims. It's often the same people who are crime victims are also perpetrators of some crimes as well. You know, they're living in neighborhoods that are, um, you know, there's just a lot of unrest and poor infrastructure in those neighborhoods. And, you know, they might be a victim one day and they may be a perpetrator the next and they're, they're, they're part of the same communities. Um, and so the people in those communities understand this is a really complicated set of issues that isn't solved just by coming in there and being tough because they see it. They see it firsthand. They know as both victims, as uh, family members of people who've been victimized, um, as people who have loved ones who've been incarcerated, they see the whole picture. And so they know someone like Larry Krasner gets it. You know, they, he gets the whole thing. This other vision of a victim is the one that, you know, we have seen politicians use all the time. You know, it's kind of like the prototype is a white female victim. You know, you see it a lot in the media. Um, that is such a tiny proportion of the people who are crime victims, but they're high profile media stories when they happen. And, and I think sometimes when a, uh, politician like Larry Krasner's opponent uses that term, he's not really thinking about where most crime victims are and where they live. He's using it as a surrogate in some ways for race, um, you know, in some ways thinking about it in black and white terms, racial terms. Um, and he's also using it in a, in a way of thinking about those voters who they've actually never been victims of any crime whatsoever, but you know, they, they watch the local news or they read news stories and they're fearful they will be a victim. And so, you know, they want someone who looks like they're saying they're gonna be really tough on them. And it's all very abstract for them. Like they, they've never been personally affected. That's a different kind of message. But when you look at who's voting for these reform prosecutors, they are the most well-educated about criminal justice issues segment of the electorate we have. They're the people who firsthand are the people who experience the worst of crime. Um, and they know they want something different because the approach we've been following has been terrible for them in their neighborhoods. So to me, it's a, it's a positive sign that at least when you mobilize the communities that are firsthand experiencing these things, you can get more transformative change. Are we getting more sophisticated on this stuff or are people just kind of tired of, hey, just throw everyone in prison and it'll all go away? You know, I think that it, part of it is, look, with these local elections, you only need to get the local voters to support you. So, you know, you kind of by definition have a little bit of a leg up because you have, um, you know, DA elections are usually not super high turnout and it's limited to the, the area where the people are electing the district attorney, as opposed to getting people from other communities, again, who aren't directly affected weighing in. So when you start talking statewide elections, you, you can see how the balance shifts a lot from a district attorney election. So I think 
it is more sophisticated in a local election in the sense that these are sophisticated voters who really understand these issues. The more you bring in a voting population that's not personally affected, the more you get people who can be misled in media perceptions and kind of like, um, you know, really stereotypes of how things are going. Uh, but that is an impediment for big reform because there's only so many things you can do at the local level, right? Um, you can elect your district attorney, maybe you can elect a sheriff in some places, but most crime policy is set at the statewide level. And, you know, the other thing, unfortunately, that we're seeing in some of these places with reform prosecutors are state level actors trying to find ways to undercut the district attorneys. So, you know, we've seen the Pennsylvania legislature try to, you know, give more authority to a state attorney general there to kind of undermine Larry Krasner, you know, um, in communities around the country that have thought about defunding their police departments, we're seeing governors and state legislatures say, if you try to defund and limit your police budget, we'll cut off your state funds. So you'll have no money, <laughs> you know, you, you really, so there, I'm not sure um, that this is all rosy. Uh, you know, I still think it's a tough slog, um, but the more people learn, whether by direct experience because they live in the communities or because there is this movement to really start to get people to understand it, I do think the better off we're all going to be because I think a lot of what we see really just comes out of low information voters. So uh, when you came out uh, here uh, and spoke in uh, the summer of 2019 at UC Davis Law School, you made a point that's really stuck with me about where we are in terms of criminal justice reform. And the point that you had made is that we've really only scratched the surface. We have not done a deep dive in, into the hard policies that are going to reduce mass incarceration. Uh, since then, a little bit has happened, um, not just the pandemic, but we've seen people like Gascon and, and Bodine and really a huge host of uh, progressive DAs have gotten elected all over the country. Uh, so where are we now in terms of dismantling mass incarceration? Yeah, you know, um, it's not that different from when uh, we talked in 2019. I mean, we had already started seeing prosecutors get elected um, on these platforms um, in a lot of places. Uh, so, you know, you'd already had that framework in places like Philadelphia and Chicago. And um, I can't remember all the timing. I think Boston uh, was before I spoke too. So we'd seen it, we knew it was coming. Um, and it was only a matter of time before it happened in places like LA and, and San Francisco. Um, so it is, it's a continuation of a trend that we were already seeing in 2019. The problem is there's a limit to how much these prosecutors can do. Um, you know, they can definitely change their own policies uh, so that they're prosecuting fewer people. So they're not seeking pretrial detention of as many people. Um, and I don't wanna undermine or discount that that's really helpful. Um, but in some ways it's a dent on this, you know, kind of enormous mass of incarceration because things they can't do, they can't get people who are already in there released. You know, for a lot of places, the prosecutor is just limited in their ability to release people who are already incarcerated. So right off the bat, you know, you need a different strategy for those folks. Um, and even when we think about them changing their policies going forward, you know, it's, 
it's first of all, it's at the hands of these elections. You know, I'd like to hope they're all going to go the way that Larry Krasner's did, but if they don't, you know, and someone else comes into office, it, the gains would be ephemeral because you'll just get the new person with a different kind of strategy. So, so I still look for more institutionalized reforms than just prosecutor elections. Um, you know, the most successful of these prosecutors, in my opinion, are the ones who change institutions long-term, you know, who get legislative change passed, they become lobbyists for bigger changes um, in their legislative body, or they move their DA's associations, you know, that they're really kind of going at the heart of the beast. Uh, you know, they're changing things like mandatory minimum sentences, not just they won't charge them, but they're lobbying to get them off the books entirely. And we are starting to see them try to do that. You know, in Virginia, a bunch of uh, pro progressive reformists, whatever you label you want to use, prosecutors, um, have banded together and they've asked the Virginia legislature to eliminate mandatory minimums. You know, to me, that's the game changer because if these prosecutors can get legislative changes and those structural changes in, you know, that that lives on even if they lose their election. And that's the kind of thing that is is the big push that you need when you're thinking about mass incarceration. So it's, you know, I think this is a really good start um, and it's promising, but, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that at the same time, the good stuff happens. You also look around and you see some really concerning trends like people who want to reform the police have this pushback by state legislatures, as I said, you know, threatening to do away with their budget. So it's a push-pull kind of thing. I, I just think the best part of all of this, um, you know, since we last spoke in 2019, the protests surrounding George Floyd's killing and just the kind of eye-opening experience that that was for Americans, um, many Americans who I think just really didn't know firsthand, you know, kind of how bad things were. I think that was a a true game changer. For me, that's a even bigger shift than these elections, because I just think for a lot of people um, who, you know, maybe they heard about things, but they had some skepticism or, you know, they, they needed to see something with their own eyes to really feel it. I think that was that cultural moment. And I think the outpouring in the streets and the just really disturbance by what people saw that's the kind of thing to me that I think gets voters more mobilized to really rethink things that they're doing. So, you know, hopefully that a lot can be built off that movement for more racial justice, because, you know, if mass incarceration is anything, it is racially unjust. We're just about out of time, but I hope you don't mind one more question. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what's your take on the uh, Manhattan's DA race? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I have my early, early voting ballot right here, actually. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to ask me about it. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, we have a lot of candidates who are um, reform-minded and, um, and to varying degrees. Uh, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see kind of which one, um, if any of them get it. There are a few that are you know, they're, they're a little bit more moderate or more status quo. Um, so, you know, I suspect we'll get somebody who wins that primary and then goes on to win the DA's election, who at least is talking about reform. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how much that will translate into actual policies. It does look like, at least in this race, most of the candidates recognize that that's something Manhattan voters want. Um, 
But at the same time, they have varying degrees of exactly what they're willing to say they'll do when they get the job. And then you've got to make sure people actually do it when they get there. Um, you know, there have been a lot of people who've run on these platforms and then they get an office and they do an about face and it's, you know, they're, they're almost unrecognizable from what they said they were going to be. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful, but, <laughs> but I'm also skeptical. All right. Well, it's always great talking to you. Thanks for taking time out to uh, be on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me again. It's good to, to see you, if, even if it's virtually. All right. We have Udi Ofer, the director of the Justice Division of the ACLU's National Political and Advocacy Department. So once again, all eyes are on Philadelphia, although uh, for a little different reason than six months ago. Uh, what are your thoughts on Krasner's win and what it means? Look, I mean, you know, the re-election of Larry Krasner is further proof that voters are hungry for candidates who run on platforms uh, committed to ending mass incarceration, right? This is a candidate who was unabashed about supporting uh, policies to tackle mass inca incarceration even better, he had a proven track record of implementing policies to tackle mass incarceration. The, the, the police lobby and the tough on crime crowd um, was adamantly against him and wanting to go back to the days of pro mass incarceration policies. And, and the voters rejected that, right? Overwhelmingly by two to one margin by, um, you know, he got even more votes than he did uh, four years ago. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Look, the ACLU, we're nonpartisan. Um, we, we, we engage in the electoral races because we care about the issues um, and we elevate where candidates stand on the issues. We educate voters, but then we let them make their own decision. Um, um, but this race had a particular resonance also because of the role of the police lobby. And I think we're gonna see more and more of that across the nation, uh, particularly in the aftermath of, of the murder of George Floyd and the, and, the, and the rise of an even bigger Black Lives Matter movement where we're seeing uh, you know, police, lobby, uh, police lobby across the country against policies that would transform policing in the United States and that would end mass incarceration. And, and the Philly DA race was in many ways ground zero for this battle, right? The police lobby spent $140,000 on this campaign. They ran really aggressive tactics. They even like got a Mr. Softy ice cream truck, right? To drive around the city to claim that Krasner was soft on crime. Um, you know, they were unabashed and they lost and they lost badly. Uh, despite these tactics. So, so that's where it was really meaningful um, in particular. Um, the voters spoke and, and they spoke loudly and they spoke clearly that they wanted end to mass incarceration. So, you know, we hope that um, other DA candidates across the nation are paying attention, right? This is now the second um, of the first wave of prosecutors who won on a platform of ending mass incarceration, who has now won re-election, right, with Kim Fox also winning re-election. 
next year is going to be another, you know, really important year with the, with the 2018 wave of, of, of prosecutors running on an ending mass incarceration platform face re-election. But, but, uh, but we hope that the takeaways from this is that, you know, all the media punditry around the backlash, around, you know, the fact that, um, you know, voters aren't ready to end mass incarceration was just wrong. I mean, they were just absolutely wrong. Um, and, and, and the results of Tuesday's elections proved it. Um, and, and you mentioned Kim Fox. I would also add uh, Kim Gardner to that. Um, yeah, yeah, I should have actually mentioned Kim Gardner. You're totally right. Um, so both Kim Fox and Kim Gardner winning um, 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 re-election is, uh, is, you know, with, with Larry Kreisner now winning a, a well, is, I, I think it's sending a resounding signal that these candidates, once they get elected, can stay true to what they promised, and look, and we had our disagreements with Krasner, um, as we've had with other candidates once they get elected. And I think that's natural, right? Again, the ACLU, the reason we're nonpartisan, part of the reason we're nonpartisan is also because we're going to be, you know, probably your number one critic once you do take office, because we're always going to be pushing the envelope and wanting prosecutors in particular to go as far as possible to end mass incarceration. But, uh, but, you know, we now have three DAs winning re-election on an ending mass incarceration platform, and that's a big deal. And by the way, in California, which I know is where you sit, look, I remember 2018 where, you know, some of the candidates who ran on a platform of ending mass incarceration did not win. Um, some of those races were really, really close, but I remember getting calls the next day from people who were like, does this mean the movement is over? Does this mean that you know, Krasner and Fox and others were a one and done. And at that time we said no. Um, and by the way, we would have said also if Krasner would have lost no, because this, this we're in a moment now where it's beyond just one person. But the fact that it was such a resound, it was such an overwhelming victory, 65 to 35, like it wasn't even close. And the amount of money spent by the police lobby on this, I just, it's, it's hard not to read a lot into it, um, particularly as, look, we're fighting this all over the country right now, right? I mean, on the presidential level, we're trying to get, you know, uh, Biden to um, abide by his commitments to reduce incarceration rates um, in cities across America. You know, the, the other big DA election this year is in, in, in Manhattan. Um, 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 so I think the same sort of, you know, the messaging that the other side really thought was going to win in, um, in Philadelphia just didn't win. And we really hope that other, the people across the nation are paying attention to this. So you mentioned Manhattan. I was going to ask that later, but I'll ask it now. Uh, what are your thoughts on Manhattan at this point? Look, and I'm, I'm going to be moderating a debate on Tuesday on this. So I'm trying, you know, to stay in my moderator role as much as possible. <laughs> But, uh, but look, but I think um, just being a bit reflective, look, I mean, um, I think the fact that now these bold policies of, you know, using prosecutorial discretion not to charge people, you know, of, 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 of just looking at the role of the DA office as part of the mechanism to end mass incarceration rather than to increase mass incarceration, right? The fact that that's now 
the main thing being debated in the Manhattan uh, uh, DA debate is a really big deal in and of itself. Because um, that, look, I grew up in New York City, right? I mean, I remember living in New York City during the Giuliani years, right? During the Bloomberg years, um, um, where, you know, New York City invented, right? Well, didn't invent, but it was the first big city to implement broken windows policing. Um, um, and now the fact that the Manhattan DA um, debate is surrounding, a, uh, is all about how do we not repeat um, the mistakes of the past is a really big deal. So already I would say, you know, the Overton window has shifted in, 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 in New York County, uh, but we'll see what the voters say. And it's, uh, you know, look, it's, 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 a contest, it's, it's a very much contested race. I would say everyone is running as a, as a liberal, right? There is no one, but there, is, there are big differences and big gaps between the candidates. There's a ton of money in the race. Um, um, and there's a whole conversation happening in New York City also about the role of Wall Street, given that it's Manhattan and how much money is being poured into the race. So, which by the way, makes the, the Manhattan DA race a bit different than other races across the country, just because Wall Street is there. Um, and this would be the office that would prosecute financial crimes. So it's a bit different than, you know, 99.9% of DA races. But the Overton window has shifted. There's no question about it. Look, we have more than 2,000 prosecutors in the United States. It is true that in the majority, the vast majority of these jurisdictions, you don't have a head prosecutor who's committed to any mass incarceration. But when you look at it as a population, right, the, the, the truth is that a huge, a large chunk of Americans right now live in a jurisdiction where the chief prosecutor ran on a platform of ending mass incarceration. And that is a big deal. And that's why, you know, during the Trump administration, you know, uh, Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions, the attorney generals, you know, spent a lot of political capital slamming people like Larry Krasner and slamming the so-called progressive prosecutor movement because they knew that this was beginning to change what it meant to be a prosecutor in the United States. So we look forward to the Manhattan election as we are to others. Um, but, uh, but I would say that already we're just at a such, I remember when the ACLU launched our effort around holding prosecutors uh, to end mass incarceration. This was right after I joined the national office in late 2016. And there were already people at that time talking about it, no question. And Color of Change has been doing great work on this. You know, Whitney Timas has been doing great work on this. Um, Angela Davis, um, um, the professor, you know, of, of, of um, you know, the law professor Angela Davis and the other Angela Davis as well. Um, so I'm not going to suggest that the ACLU was the first to this, but we were among the first, right? And it wasn't a popular thing at the time. Like very few people were talking about it today. It is the thing. I mean, the, the cover story of, the, of this week's Nation magazine is all about the progressive prosecutor movement, including California. Uh, so we're, you know, I think now what we're asking ourselves as a movement is how can we push the envelope even more, right? What, what should be, now that we've shown the candidates can win re-election based on kind of the first generation of progressive policies, what's the next generation? And that's where, you know, there's a lot of conversation happening around, okay, well, what, sh what, what, what should our expectations be now of a prosecutor who's committed to ending mass incarceration? And, and how does it intersect with the other movements too, right? Around, you know, the police divestment movement. You know, progressive, 
offices that are run by so-called progressive prosecutors have also seen budget increases. Um, and there's a real kind of questioning happening now of whether that is right. Um, and I would say that that is not like, I, I, we're not looking to make prosecutor offices bigger, even if it's in the name of quote unquote doing good. In fact, we're looking to do the opposite. We're looking to you know, reduce the footprint of the criminal legal system as much as possible. And that includes the size of the prosecutor offices where almost everywhere, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, you know, the vast majority of cases the prosecutors handle are misdemeanor cases, right? Um, uh, you know, there are more than 10 million arrests a year in the United States. 80% of them are misdemeanors, right? 95% of them have nothing to do with violence. Those are the types of cases that go before prosecutors. So I think the next generation of prosecutors, we're gonna expect them to push the envelope even further with, you know, shrinking their docket and actually shrinking their offices as well. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the ACLU campaign from 2016. And I, I went to San Francisco, I think, right around that time. And, um, you know, I was at uh, a luncheon and they were talking about uh, their uh, campaign, what a difference a prosecutor makes. And at that time, um, you know, the, the alarming statistic was something like 85 percent of all uh, DAs face no reelection, and even when they do, 85% of them win. Now, what's really interesting is, you know, one thing we're doing right now is we're tracking a whole bunch of DA races that are going to come up in California in 2022, and almost every county has a contested race. So we're probably tracking 10 races now. Uh, everywhere from Sacramento and Yolo, where I live, to Alameda County, where the DA just announced she's not going to run. Uh, there's going to be a bloodbath in Orange County. Um, and and it, it, it's just really interesting. One thing I wanted to uh, kind of get back to on Krasner, um, you know, is that what, and we're seeing this kind of in San Francisco and LA, we're, we're seeing this kind of uh, almost kind of a red versus blue battle where, um, and maybe I'm mixing my metaphors here because obviously blue refers to uh, liberal and, and democratic rather than uh, cops. But, uh, you know, what, what, what's really interesting is there, there, the, um, the police and the traditional prosecutors are almost running kind of traditional red state issues, red state races in deep blue cities and and that doesn't seem to be working very well for them yeah look i think though uh i think carlos vega who was krasner's opponent tried to run as a reformer also he had an identity crisis right because i do think he recognized and i'm sure he did polling right polling that we'd seen had shown that voters liked what krasner was doing right around bail reform around now charging a bunch of low-level offenses um, around other policies. So, so I'm sure Vega was looking at the same polling to see that um, the voters were actually in agreement with Krasner. Um, but the police lobby ran an unabashed, you know, tough on crime as if this was like, you know, 1990s Giuliani era. And they just, I mean, they humiliated themselves, to be honest. Like it was just, there was such dissonance from what um, voters wanted. 
So look, I think I think what you're describing is actually a big challenge that the movement is facing now, where you're going to have candidates, and we've already seen this, candidates run kind of saying reformist language and kind of saying that they're going to, you know, end mass incarceration, reform the criminal legal system, and then that's not how they operate their offices. Um, but you're right, look, what we're seeing, and look, we've seen this, we do a ton of polling at the ACLU, um, when it comes to electoral races all over the country, you know, we've worked on more than, you know, 40 DA races over the last several years. Um, but we also are working on other candidate races where we're trying to insert the issue of ending mass incarceration, educate voters. And in every jurisdiction around the country, we are seeing that voters are ready for, at the very least, reform. And the issue is actually how far they want the reform to go. We, you know, Oklahoma is one of the states we're heavily engaged in. It doesn't get deeper red than Oklahoma, right? I would argue it's the most conservative state in the country, right? Trump won Oklahoma in 2020 by the widest margin, I'm sorry, 2016, by the widest margin in the nation. Um, but those same voters also voted to defelonize drug possession, right? They voted to raise the felony threshold for a property offense. They voted to divert money from the criminal legal system to mental health and addiction services. So I think, you know, voters get it. Um, um, so, you know, the, the, the DA race in Philadelphia is just another example. And again, the fact that it was such a huge margin, almost a two to one margin. I hope, look, I hope the Justice Department is paying attention. I hope, you know, President Biden is paying attention because we're also, you know, we're engaged in a lot of you know conversation right now with the White House about what is it going to do to end mass incarceration. And there are a bunch of things before it. Um, and one of the things we're trying to prove to them um, is that this is a popular, you know, this is popular work, like voters understand it. Even, even in periods like the ones we're in right now where we're seeing a temporary, what we hope is a temporary increase in certain crimes because of a pandemic that has devastated lives. So even the fact that, you know, the fact that the police lobby, you know, distorted all the crime data and threw that Krasner and voters didn't bite, I think shows the fact that people are getting very sophisticated on this. And then my, my last question kind of applies that to California. We've seen the pushback against Bodine in uh, San Francisco and Gascon in LA. Uh, I mean, is this kind of, now a blueprint for how it's going to play out there or is it just anyone's guess i don't know man you guys in california have weird rules i don't, <laughs> I don't know so any other place in the country that has these recall election drives every other minute um i don't know what to tell you other than to say that polling consistently shows voters wanna you know and cash bail they want, uh, uh, you know, they don't want to see people who have mental health needs or, or substance use disorders or are poor to face, you know, the criminal legal system rather than the support services. Voters across the country right now, whether they live in Southern California, Northern California, Philadelphia, or New York City, are all about alternatives to incarceration, right? They're all about, you know, how do we, and this distinction that the U.S. has of being the biggest incarcerator in the world. And that's what they're hungry for. But look, but these races are still contested. So you're always going to have, 
a, you know, a, you know, 30% of the population who's going to be the, no, all we want is tough on crime. And, and in places like California, they have the ability to be really loud because of, you know, election rules. Um, um, but, but I think, you know, I think, you know, what, what, what Philadelphia showed is that even when we're facing a crisis of a pandemic, um, um, you know, voters want to stay on the route of, um, of, of, of ending mass incarceration. So I think that's what's gonna happen in California as well, but I don't pretend to fully understand the California electoral system. It is actually amazing that we don't have more recalls given how easy it actually is to get it on the ballot. <laughs> okay, there's something beautiful and democratic about it, I guess you could argue in that a minority of voices can have a, such a loud bullhorn, but, uh, but I certainly wouldn't use it as a way to measure um, where voters are writ large because of the unique system that you have. Well, I do think, you know, 2022 is gonna be really interesting because like I said, there's probably, I, I can count off the top of my head, probably 10 contested races where traditional prosecutors are gonna be facing progressive challengers. And some of those are gonna be in big counties. Um, and so, you know, across the nation, look, and I have to mention this, right? I know we're going to end, but like across the nation too, right? You're going to have Rachel Rollins in Suffolk County, Boston, Massachusetts, um, up. You're going to have John Crusoe in Dallas, Texas, right? You know, which, you know, a lot of times people forget about him, but he ran on a bold vision of 20% decarceration in Texas. Um, so there's going to be a few really pivotal races in 2022. Well, thanks for joining us. It's always good discussing stuff with you. Um, hope you're doing well. And Thank uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com. <laughs>